0: Well, hello, everyone. This is Will Marshall. I'm president of the Progressive Policy Institute in Washington, DC, and welcome to today's podcast and conversation with uh, a real hero of mine, Representative Connor Lamb. Uh, Representative Lamb is uh, represents the 17th district of Southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, he uh, was one of the stars in the class of 2018 who has uh, helped the Democrats take over uh, the Congress, or the House, that is, and he, uh, you know, I think one in what would used to be considered a classic swing district. I don't know if it still is. We'll find out. Uh, but uh, Representative Lamb, before coming to Congress, was an assistant U.S. attorney in Pittsburgh. Also served on active duty with the United States Marines. As I said, really a standout member of this this new class, uh, just having won re-election uh, in 2020. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people are talking about Conor Lamb now because they may have seen on YouTube uh, a really tough floor speech he gave uh, last week uh, during this, uh, this Trump riot on Capitol Hill in the Capitol when, when after police finally restored order and Congress came back to finish, finish its job of certifying the 2020 election results, he gave a really tough speech in the early hours of the Warning. I just wanna to quote to, you know, saying very forthrightly to his Republican colleagues, these objections of yours, that is objections to the electoral college vote, uh, don't deserve an ounce of respect. And the, that didn't go so d- down too well with some of the Republicans. I saw that <laughs> it looked like uh, fisticuffs maybe uh, 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 being invited, but in any case, um, thanks for giving that speech. It was, it was really important. And I think it inspired a lot of people Tell us just a little bit about you know the aftermath of that. Did, have you heard uh, uh, you know what's been the public reaction in your district in your state uh, to to that that, that speech? Uh,
1: it's been supportive because I think that a lot of people uh, out here, even in what you referred to as a, a swing district, which it is, um, I think everyone has had this feeling for a long time, like these people are lying with impunity. You know, and nobody else gets to live their life that way. You know, nobody else gets to go to work every day and just not tell the truth and, and not be held accountable for it. And I think after what we saw at the Capitol during the day last Wednesday, the attack, literally a, an invasion and an attack of our Capitol. Um, everybody knew how serious this was and what the stakes were and the idea that you would have these elected representatives, people elected on the same ballots that they were saying were fraudulent only for the presidential election and not for them and their own votes would still be pushing these same lies that clearly are what is responsible for the attack. Um, that, just, that just strikes a nerve for all Americans. Like it's not a Democrat Republican thing. I heard from plenty of conservative Trump supporting people that they agreed with what I said. And, and so it was kind of a, I think it was an important nonpartisan just kind of pro-America moment.
0: Yes, well, I, uh, did you get a sense that there were uh, some sense of shame among House Republicans who had gone along with this uh, Trump legend that uh, there was something wrong with the 2020 vote? Uh, obviously, some some people were didn't you know some people were pretty hostile to your remarks. But did you get a sense that others, uh, like Kelly Lo- Loeffler over there in the Senate, you know, who sort of backed off this spurious claim? Uh, after the after the rampage in the Capitol. Did you get a sense that that's happened on the Republican side?
1: I think a little bit. I mean, there were some, obviously, who, who changed their position on the objections from earlier in the day and then after the invasion, decided no longer to support them. So I think that's an example. Um, there was others. There's one example I can think of of somebody I know pretty well who... Um, Actually, still voted for the objections, but stayed out of the chamber completely. Never spoke on the record, and has not done a single media appearance since. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's manifesting in different ways. And then I think the members who were on the floor when I was, you can see from their reaction that that having that light shined on them uh, hurt very much, and it, that mm-hmm. probably has some connection to shame that they were feeling. Uh, you know, they decided to to get angry about it. Um, but you know, that's that's going to be how we have to deal with these people. Um, for a while, probably because uh, they are either they either know what they're doing and are choosing to do it in any way to the really detriment of our democracy and national security, which I think is true for most of them, or they are so willfully blind um, that we really have to spell that out for their own constituents a lot
0: more clearly than I even realized. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you, you know, you, you stress the gravity of this invasion, this, you know, of the capital. Really, an attack on Congress, uh, incited by the President of the United States, pretty unprecedented in our in our history. Um, and I guess one question is, how long will this sense of outrage and insult last? You know, I was just reading something in on the in the Republican media, which described the atmosphere last Wednesday as a festival atmosphere. But you know, when you look at the pictures of people battering down doors and walls looking for Nancy Pelosi's office battering police officers including one or two actually who are dead now uh, and, and five people are dead uh, you know you know how important is impeachment uh, congressman to driving home to the American people the, the seriousness of this of this insurrection yeah it's important
1: for that purpose you know for the purpose of kind of public accountability um, you know, showing that no one is above the law. But I actually think it's, it's more important for like an immediate practical purpose, which is that President Trump actually poses a threat to our government, our institutions, and many of our communities right now, because he is the person um, that all of these different groups, you know, the Oath Keepers, the Boogaloo Boys, the Proud Boys, uh, you know, all these violent insurrectionists, he's the one that ties them all together. And he is the one who they take their orders and uh, inspiration from. And he could do anything at a moment's notice right now to provoke another attack. Or one of my big concerns is that he starts pardoning these people or in some other way, aiding and abetting, you know, a cover up of of what they've done and preventing them from being brought to justice. And so he need that's a power of his office. Like the pardon power is a power of his office that he currently holds right now as we're sitting here. And it has to be taken away from him. And that's what impeachment is really about. It makes it very different from, the other impeachment, you know, which was about the danger that he posed in national security, but I don't think anyone felt it was so immediate that it literally can't happen
0: quickly enough. Right. So what you're saying in a sense is that it's not just the, the rampage in the Capitol itself, it's creating the atmosphere, the insurrectionary atmosphere, telling people they basically their government is an alien and hostile force and it has to be, uh, it has to be uh, forced to do the popular will by mob violence, you know, that's... Exactly.
1: And I think that's that's an important thing for people to grasp because it, it ties in all these other members and their culpability. You know, these, these senators, representatives, and President Trump themselves, um, even before the election, but let's just take since the election, by telling these people over and over again the lie that the election was stolen from them, that it was rigged, that there was all this voter fraud, by telling them that, You have taken a group of people and you have given them almost no other option besides violence because they are angry. They do have something to say. They're not happy with how America is right now. Normally, we would say, well, you know, take your grievances to the polls, write your congressman, organize, protest. Well, this message coming from Trump and the Republicans has made all of those people believe that's not an option anymore. And it, it creates violence as their option, which is what they exercised last week. And Trump has done nothing to change that yet. And most of these other Republicans have not either, and that is why they were culpable. They still are culpable, and they have so much work to do um, to try to undo this damage.
0: Right. Well, uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, clearly, you know, wants uh, uh, Vice President Trump to exercise his powers under the Constitution to start an Article Twenty-five proceeding that would have uh, that it would have him take over power until the end of this until the end of Trump's term next week. Uh, to safeguard the country, uh, my guess is he won't do that. <laughs> you may have better information, but uh, uh, so it looks like we're headed toward an impeachment vote. Do you see? Do you see? You know, more than just a handful of Republicans supporting of this effort in the House, or is it going to be pretty much like last time, where they either through cowardice or or because they're collude, colluding with Trump, they're all going to you know be against it.
1: It's very hard to say um, and you know, I am someone who really has tried to focus a lot of my short career so far on bipartisanship, reaching out to the other side, trying to do things that both Democrats and Republicans can support. Um, and I, I, this is just not a moment in which that's as important to me as it normally is. Um, mm-hmm. We really have to do this impeachment to protect the American people from a, an existing and current threat. And if this is a moment where that has to be done on partisan grounds in order to make it happen, uh, so be it, you know, and, and I will do my best. I think we wrote that article of impeachment so that it was very narrowly ta- tailored so that Republicans could support it. It's not about all the other things that, you know, a lot of Democrats would probably want to level at Trump, but, you know, if they can't bring themselves to get on board, uh, so be it, we're going to do the right thing.
0: Right. And another reason it's important is, is to, uh, you know, restore the deterrent value of the appeasement uh, the constitutional power to uh, to to impeach a president, you know, for for future leaders who may be tempted to uh, uh, resort to anti democratic means to try to get their way or hold on to power, uh, you know, if this is not an impeachable offense, you have to wonder what Republicans would ever think <laughs> an impeachable offense is. But yeah, let me ask you a, a you question about
1: him really saying he didn't do it. Or the article of impeachment is not correct or anything. I mean, the only objections you're really hearing are these sort of procedural ones of, oh, there's not enough time or
0: right. uh,
1: it, it, it will, you know, not help us unify the country, which, you know, would have been a good thing for them to be focused on a week ago when we were certifying the electoral votes. Um, and so I don't think there's any question about his conduct and, and whether it warrants it. It's just this, these practical questions, which mm-hmm. I think are valid, but I think the practical questions actually lead you to impeachment.
0: Right. Um, and uh, I guess on the on the other side of that are concerns among Democrats, obviously that you know, Joe Biden takes office next week. And, you know, under normal circumstances, he wouldn't have had to worry much. We would have had a peaceful transition and he could have just launched into his agenda. But uh, the impeachment might be an overhang, uh, unwelcome overhang from, uh, you know, Trumpian a Trumpian cloud that hangs over his administration uh, and eats up bandwidth that would be he would rather spend on advancing his you know priorities in the new Congress. Uh, what do you think about that argument
1: uh, it, again it's it's a valid concern, and impeachment is not a perfect tool for that reason i mean mm-hmm. it is it is concerning, but I just keep coming back to the fact that You know, if you think about the past year that we've been through, all that we all have seen on television about essential workers, and these doctors and nurses that we all probably even know, who've worked like 25 days in a row, you know, 12 hour shifts, constant stress and strain saving people's lives. There's a lot of people in America who've done that for the last year. And I think if we have to ask the Senate to do that for a little while, to literally uh, ensure the functioning and transition of our government. Um, I don't, I just don't think that's too much to ask.
0: Right. Um, Congressman, let me ask about other things that is other sanctions. Let's say that we have an impeachment. The house obviously will pass it. Senate, my guess is they won't, but you know, you can always live in hope. But, um, but, uh, after that, uh, there'll be a new justice department. Um, would you be in favor of bringing federal charges? You know, there are, there uh, Uh, inciting uh, violence uh, and sedition or, you know, federal crimes uh, with very serious penalties. Do you think that the, you know, the Justice Department ought to look at bringing charges against Trump and maybe some of the other people who were haranguing that mob last Wednesday before they marched on the Capitol?
1: Um, I don't think he should be treated differently than any other American once he leaves office. Um, And what way that comes out, I don't know, because, you, you know, his comments, are sort of a layer removed from uh, you know, the direct actions of the people that were following them in the sense that you know, he didn't explicitly say like break the windows, go in. You know? So it, that's, a, that's just a hazy area of the law, it really is. And, and one of the challenges that we encountered in the first impeachment was um, a lot of these crimes have to do with your intentions, your state of mind, and it's almost impossible to pin down a single state of mind or intention to Trump, you know, I mean, it's just the way that he sort of is. Um, it's another reason that impeachment is a is a more effective and, in, and probably accurate option here, because the the real core of what he did was a complete betrayal of his oath of office as president. You know, it's not so much about the technicalities of criminal statutes. Right. But when I say that, I don't think he should be treated differently than any other American is. I don't think we know yet everything that he did or didn't do. I mean, I, I think that we get to see his public speeches and commentary and his tweets. And there's an entire world of private communications that's been going on that we may learn more about. And that, that Georgia call from about a week or so ago is a good example. Yeah. I don't know if he knew that was going to become public, but he's probably having calls like that all the time. And that might change, you know, this answer once we learn more about them.
0: And and that kind of you know buttresses calls for a really thoroughgoing investigation, you know, a kind of a 9/11 commission type look at everything leading up to this uh, this assault on the Capitol. Well, thank you for that because uh, that's in the news this this week, and we'll all be watching uh, what happens, I guess, uh, tomorrow with the with the House impeachment vote. Um, so uh, let me let me switch a little bit to the to the 2020 elections that. Uh, uh, the president's refusal to accept was the trigger for all that. But again, you back to you and your district. You won in southwestern Pennsylvania. Some might consider consider that Trump country. Describe your district a little for us, Congressman, and you know, and how it was that you were able to uh, you were able to 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 win uh, uh, out there. Uh, you know, outside the urban areas where Democrats traditionally thrive.
1: Yeah, my district is a is a mix of suburbs that touch the city of Pittsburgh. So, you know, it's almost urban in, in a number of those places. Mm-hmm. And then it, it kind of stretches along the rivers into further suburbs, exurbs and rural. Um, and so that's basically what makes it a swing district is you get a little bit of, of everything. And in my area in southwestern Pennsylvania, sort of like southeastern Ohio and uh, parts of Michigan, um, we have a lot of what you would almost call like industrial communities, you know, not, not purely rural, not purely suburban, but you know, they, they used to be anchored by a a steel mill or a glass plant or a copper plant or something like that, or a power plant um, even still. And those are the areas where you have a lot of um, old line union members, Uh, many of them still registered as Democrats, not all voting as Democrats in every election, Uh, but their votes are up for grabs still. And I think that was how I got into office in the first place. You know, the first time I ran for office, uh, President Trump had won my district by 19 percentage points. And really the way that we um, climbed back out of that hole was by going straight at these union members uh, who had voted for Trump in pretty large numbers and just talking about uh, the basics of their family budget, economic issues, pension, paycheck, um, and letting them know that, that I was going to fight for them on those issues, even if they didn't agree with everything else for the rest of my party. And, and that can still work here in southwestern Pennsylvania.
0: So, so in other words, you've got a lot of, uh, you know, so voters who who fit the profile of the core Trump voter, white working class voters, um, who may, you know, probably used to work in an in industrial sector, maybe still do, but that, uh uh, for, for, have moved away, enough of them, I guess, have moved away uh, from Trump and his party to, to maybe flip that direction and flip your district in a, in a purple direction. So congratulations on that. Um, let's talk about Pennsylvania for a second, obviously critically important state once again, you know, uh, no, probably no more important state in the last two presidential elections, no, no more pivotal state. Uh, and Biden's, I mean, uh, Trump's people were really, you know, really convinced that they were going to do well in Pennsylvania. And yet, as you pointed out in his, in your floor speech last week, uh, uh, Republican candidates ran ahead of Trump uh, in Pennsylvania. I mean, give us your thoughts about about how Biden won Pennsylvania and why, why Trump wasn't able to pull off a repeat of his of his 2016 uh, win in Pennsylvania?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, the the Biden campaign did a great job, um, you know, within the confines of the pandemic, uh, organizing, reaching people, being innovative, you know, doing all that they had to do to try to drive turnout. Um, but then when you see the results statewide, you can see Joe Biden won this race in the suburbs, you know, the suburbs of Pittsburgh, the suburbs of Philadelphia, communities that were really solidly pro-republican for a very long time uh, and people switched and a lot of them switched i think for reasons of just the stability um, decency that that biden represents the idea of having a more sort of normal president at the helm who's just going to behave as the commander-in-chief and reset things in america that that matters a lot in the suburbs Mm -hmm. and then i think he did a very smart thing um, on two of the kind of most hot button issues that were swimming around in the ether here And, and one was this whole issue of um, energy, and especially natural gas, you know, the fracking revolution has been critically important to Pennsylvania as a whole, especially southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, Ben Bernanke said during the Obama administration that it was the most important development in the American economy since 2008. Um, And it it sometimes shocks people to hear that, because if you're not from one of the producing regions, you, its effect on your life is sort of invisible, but it has probably still lowered your energy bills and um, is definitely strengthened our national security. And Biden uh, from the beginning was one of the only democratic candidates to just refuse to talk about a fracking ban of any kind. You know, I mean, he had been in the Obama Biden administration where to them it was a bridge to an energy future. And he was able to talk about the strengths and weaknesses of it. And he stayed the course on that. And the Trump campaign lied about his position. I mean, they put commercials on TV talking about Biden's fracking ban, Biden will ban fracking. I mean, they really did that for a long time. And it, it made it challenging, but, but Biden came to Pittsburgh and gave a speech and, and said, I will not ban fracking. Let me repeat that, I will not ban fracking. Mm-hmm. And I worked with his campaign a lot to keep that message out there. Um, and so that was, that was important. That really stopped the bleeding uh, out here that I think otherwise would have happened. And there was the separate issue, which has been on my mind a lot the last couple of days is when we had all the, the, the protests um, and the looting of, of small businesses and, and the destruction that we all saw in cities around America, He came back to Pittsburgh again, and he gave a speech that said uh, looting is not protest and people who break the law and commit violence and destruction of of property should be prosecuted. And he not only said in a speech, he he turned it into a commercial and put it on the air here in Southwestern Pennsylvania. And that wasn't the easiest thing to do given the emotions in the democratic party at the time, but he did it. Mm -hmm. And so I think people who were in the middle independents, moderate Republicans saw that and said, this is a guy who's practical and pragmatic and has core values and he's not some ideologue and, and that's sort of how Pennsylvania is.
0: Right. Well, yeah, Biden, you know, as you, as you say, you know, was, you know, he was against the fracking ban. He was against defund the police. You know, he didn't, he didn't uh, subscribe to a lot of the uh, positions that the progressive left were pushing on candidates uh, throughout the 2020 election cycle. Uh, but uh, and I think you you've had you've had some interchanges with the left wing of the you know sort the of progressive left and the Democratic Party about those those uh, those positions and you know there seems to be uh, a lack of appreciation put it mildly on the left that this is a big diverse country and a big diverse Democratic coalition. That, you know, what goes down in AOC's district in Brooklyn is not going to, you know, necessarily work in Butler County, Pennsylvania. Uh, and, uh, you know, if the Democrats are going to break out of their kind of, you know, geographic enclaves and do better in the suburbs, exurbs, countryside and in rural counties, uh, then, you know, you've got to talk to those voters and I understand their interests better than we typically do.
1: Uh, And I think on that point, you know, you and I talked about this a little bit ahead of time. It's one of the reasons that, um, you know, being sort of a a Puritan or like a green ideologue on energy is is not going to work. Is that in a place like southwestern Pennsylvania, which we all can see now is critical to winning these presidential elections. um, The natural gas uh, revolution has had a really strong kind of geographical component. You know, so it's not really, you know, we're not drilling for natural gas in downtown Pittsburgh. It's happening 20 miles, 30 miles outside of the city, uh, in other counties, in communities that used to have a big steel mill, or um, even a lot of coal mines, you know, there's a lot of coal mining country around here. And those jobs in the past anchored these communities, you know, everybody worked there. And they sponsored the high school football team. And it was kind of the center of town life. And a lot of people are familiar with the story of how, In our economy, as things have changed, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff went away. It went overseas, it was automated, whatever. Nothing else came in Mm -hmm. and replaced that economic weight in these communities, that, that money, those hours of work, the opportunities for young people without a college education. Nothing replaced that until natural gas came along. So sometimes, you know, my own more liberal constituents will say to me, you should be working harder to put... Uh, solar farms in these communities and green energy. And, and I, I'm, I just have to tell them, look, those companies aren't knocking at the door to go to Beaver County or Green County, Pennsylvania, as far as I know. Uh, but the natural gas companies are. Mm-hmm. So we can work with them to do it as cleanly and efficiently as possible. But you got to be on the side of people's jobs that want to live in their own hometown because it's something a lot of us want. I mean, that's a very just all American thing.
0: That's really, that's a, that's a great insight that in a sense, the, the shale revolution helped fill some of the vacuum from deindustrialization. And because, you, you know, the same thing is true of, of, of Ohio, right over the border. Y'all. Right. And
1: there's going to be a whole sort of follow on thing now where there is, is manufacturing enabled by that. I mean, we have right. a example in my district, they're making this petrochemical cracker plant where they're going to they make plastic out of a mm-hmm. byproduct of the gas drilling and, and so it, it enables more than just the, the energy production but also kind of a whole manufacturing economy that right a lot to, to bring employment back to these areas
0: although the, the cracker cracker plants are very controversial i gather uh yeah our, our friend bill peduto over in pittsburgh is not a fan and so we, we know there's a debate on that but Before we leave, just the specific question of gas uh, and and maybe broaden out, talk more about the energy and climate politics for a bit and policy. Um, You know, how important do you think Biden's position on gas, uh, you know, his understanding of the economic importance, his understanding of how it's working class jobs, you know, good production jobs, middle class jobs. uh, You know, is that a small factor, uh, you know, uh, or or you think of a a powerful one in his ability to, you know, to win in Pennsylvania?
1: Oh, it was a huge factor. Um, And and really, I think we still lost more votes than we should have, because part of the dynamic, like I was saying, was that the, the Trump campaign was just blatantly lying about Biden's position. And they started doing it early, and they stuck with it for a really long time. I think their polling was showing them how powerful it is, because like I said, I mean, there's, there's whole stretches of the map out here where that's a major issue in almost everyone's economic life, Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. Um, and so once that message started breaking through to people, oh, Biden's going to ban fracking, your job's going away, you won't, I mean, that's, that's a three alarm fire for a family that depends mm-hmm. on that, right? And that was the nature of those were Trump's only effective ads where he would put these normal people on TV. And they would say, you know, basically here's my family and my town, here's what I do. Joe Biden's gonna take that away, it's crushing. Mm-hmm. And so just kind of trying to retake that share of voters who were lied to and tell them Biden's real position took a lot of effort. And we pro- still probably didn't get back everybody, but um, we clawed back enough that, it, you know, it, it, it worked.
0: And uh, PPI, Progressive Policy Institute, we had a premonition that, uh uh the politics of energy and natural gas is going to be very important in pennsylvania and ohio and you know it's important in a whole bunch of states but pennsylvania and ohio are in the top five of gas producers in the country uh so we did some polling and we we drilled down pun intended in those uh in those gas rich counties the shale belt in southwestern pennsylvania and over the border into ohio and we found that uh voters there uh uh, that that uh, Biden outperformed Hillary Clinton in those counties, the specific shale-producing counties by uh, three points. Uh, so he didn't win them. You know, these are tough rural counties for any Democrat, I suppose. But uh, but Biden did better. And that was so our polling certainly reinforces your point that this was really critical. Yeah, to it's in
1: this election, I mean, three points is a ton in yeah, counties right. like this. I mean, as far as because, you, you know, he's already doing better in the in the metropolitan areas, too. So it's um that's really significant and just to kind of illustrate it a different way you know the the chairman of our democratic party in one of these counties that i'm talking about i was at an event with him uh right before the pandemic he had just bought his son a car with proceeds from a natural gas lease on his land i mean it really it really cuts across the the party spectrum out here so i understand that
0: yeah and and we should say you know our poll also found that 71 percent of pennsylvanians take climate change seriously. They think it's a real problem. They want more strenuous action to, to fight it. So it, it's not as though we're people don't know the risk that they want a, a balanced approach that uh, that is good for jobs and the economy and for the climate. Yeah, so let, well, let, also let's, because let's, this
1: is such a big coal region, you know, people know that that gas actually contributed to to our efforts against carbon emissions because we used to have a lot of coal fired power plants around right. here and people mining coal. And now we don't have as much of that because gas took that market share and there's only half as much carbon. And so that's kind of like a locally known factor here in in a way that I don't think is true in the rest of the country.
0: Or is that true? And we've tried to make that point because it's nationally true. You know, under President Obama, uh, our greenhouse gas emissions fell as we substituted uh, coal, excuse me, gas generation for coal in the electricity sector. So even as the economy grew uh, greenhouse gas emissions. fell, you can do this uh, if you if you get the the balance of your policies, right? And, uh, and I don't think uh, I don't think the previous president got enough enough credit for that. Uh, but 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 now we do have a kind of a you know an abolitionist drive that is, you know uh, all the Bernie Sanders, the progressive caucus, a lot of folks who think that you know uh, we need to ban uh, gas as quickly as possible. Uh, and so I do want to talk about, you know, sort of the broader politics of energy for a second. And I should just so our listeners understand that you're someone who's really specialized in this. You've done a lot of work on grid, modernizing the electricity grid and, and, on, a, and on a topic that we're really interested in, and that is, you know, batteries, battery strength and store, you know, uh, energy storage, so the kind of things that will support a more electrified infrastructure, including electric vehicles, which we think. I uh, talked to our mutual friend, Congressman Tim Ryan of uh, Youngstown, Ohio about this, you know, we think that uh, uh, getting, elect- getting electric vehicles uh, plants up and running across the, particularly in the Midwestern industrial regions, you know, the Rust Belt, if you will, uh, is something that we ought to make a national priority. Of. We think, you know, uh, President Biden would like to do that as well. So that's, that's really important. Um, he he's going to do something this week. I'm not exactly sure what his his economic plan for this this week is, but uh, just uh, reflect on his general approach to clean energy infrastructure and and job creation. Is this is this something that you're you're very optimistic about or apprehensive about? Or...
1: No, no, it is. And I, I think there's a couple of different ways to look at um, what President-elect Biden is going to do here. One is he is he is very focused on using the power of the US government itself and its purchasing power to help drive um, some of these industries forward. And that's actually like, if you just look historically that really is the best model that we have for the government succeeding in this way. And so you can start with something like um, the development of nuclear energy and aviation during World War II and the aftermath Um, that was mostly driven by, by government purchasing you know, not necessarily direct government employee work every day, but use of the federal purse um, to stimulate these companies in their earliest stages. So like the first companies that were making KC-130 aircraft, like there wasn't a civilian market for that. So the government had to buy hundreds of those. And then eventually there was. Um, Same thing for nuclear, which was invented under the auspices of the Manhattan Project. And, um, you know, then later became sellable into the civilian world. And so I think Biden is looking at things like, the authority that the energy uh, department has to make these large loans, which gave birth to Tesla. You know, everyone always focused on Solyndra and the Obama administration, how that was sort of a scandal, but the other recipient of that loan program was Tesla and it was critical Mm -hmm. in their development, you know, now world leading uh, electric car company. So he's got that. He's got things like, um, you know, just buying a few million electric trucks for the U S postal service, like for some company, that will take them from here to here and make, help make them probably a player in driving forward electric vehicles that are you know more truck or van or cargo oriented, which is also an important mm-hmm. uh, thing. And, and there's, a, there's a million examples like that of the way we can use federal spending to help lift this. And, and what people need to understand is that's what China has been doing and will do, our, our biggest competitor here. You know, One of the points that Tim Ryan always makes, and I remember when he made it to me the first time, was you look at the electrical vehicle market, someone is gonna build 30 million of these things in the next decade, maybe more. Someone's gonna do it. It's not a question of whether people want that technology or whether it's coming, like, it is coming, the demand's there. So really the question for us is, do we wanna do everything it takes to get those built in America or just let China build them? And I, I think at least the people listening to this podcast know our answer to that.
0: Yeah, well, amen to that. We uh, at PPI, we've done a lot of work on this electric vehicle potential and, you know, here again, the Chinese have a very conscious strategy to dominate this emerging uh, market. Uh, and uh, they now have, they now, they're now now responsible for about 40% of the global production of electric vehicles. And we're saying American has some catch up to do. and We got to build the, you know, we got to build the, the infrastructure, storage and charging infrastructure for the mass commercialization of electric vehicles, electric cars and trucks—we got to do that fast because uh, because the Chinese have stolen a bit of a march on us there, just as they did on on solar panel uh, production. And so, you know, uh, and I think that that I think that you know, as you say, the President Biden is aware of that and wants to make sure that we're catching up. But you know, we we are we do have this problem on the Democratic Party and the that uh, you know there are a lot of people who want to have a debate about whether we should be prohibit you know abolishing natural gas and fracking now and uh, or as soon as, as soon as we can uh, or you know whether there is a path toward uh, a clean energy uh, transition that you know that is uh, that, that, that balances our economic interests and our climate uh, interests and that uh, doesn't tell working Americans that they have to give up their jobs, you know, next year, uh, in order to, you know, to save the climate. Uh, so, you know, we've, we've re- recently done work in which we've proposed a kind of a, a bargain, uh, in which the government recognizes that gas has been a really important part of the growth of a cleaner grid, that is, it's backstop and reinforced An electric grid that increasingly takes on renewable energy wind and and that's
1: really important for people to know i mean that's a point that like ernie moniz i know makes a lot is you can't the more solar and wind you put on you need gas as the flexible backup and so yeah that's, that's crucial
0: yeah because uh and i think we're seeing a little of this in california uh it's it's a you know uh if you don't have the capacity the backup capacity, then you get shortages, and you get blackouts, uh, and you get higher higher energy prices, uh, and so in addition to the prospect of losing a lot of jobs, uh, these are real concerns that you know that we need to address. So, what, what we we sort of proposed in a recent paper at PPI was that you know there'd be a kind of a new bargain here in which the public you know authorities, the president, Congress, acknowledge that gas is playing an important role in speeding along. Uh, America's evolution toward a more uh, clean energy, renewable energy, electricity grid. Uh, and, and that we need that backstop until we can develop, you know, storage capacities and carbon capture, you know, capacities to, uh, to so that we decarbonize uh, uh, gas. And that that is the real, you know, so, so that's the real goal of policy. It's not to, to keep gas in the ground, ban fracking, it is to take the carbon out. <laughs> Uh, that's right. It, yeah. And I think
1: that, that's the first thing to, to say um, is that we talked about this on Biden's um, Energy and Climate Change Task Force that I served on. It was chaired by John Kerry. Um, and, and the way they ended up phrasing it was technology neutral, you right. know, and, and that actually makes a ton of sense. If you think about it, if we can all agree that the most pressing problem is the emission of greenhouse gases, mainly carbon, but all greenhouse gases like that's what's causing climate change. That's our biggest threat. Um, why would we try to pick a favorite technology to stop that? Like, I think the the common sense thing to do would say, whatever technology helps us lower emissions the fastest, uh, or whatever mix of technologies, which is what the real experts say we need, um, is what we should do. And that's all that someone like me is really asking for. I'm not asking for special treatment for gas, uh, saying that I'm pretty sure that in our optimized mix, and that mix has to, you have to take price into account, because if, things are too expensive, you know. people won't use it, they will rebel, it won't you know, have the lasting change you seek. Uh, there is clearly gonna be a role for gas and right. there's clearly gonna be an international role for gas. I mean, that's the other point is we can do everything right in the United States. You could figure out solar and wind and the rest of it. Um, what's that 15% of world emissions or something and they're still building new coal plants right. and you know, new ones like that are gonna run for the next 50 years. So unless we figure out how to export our gas and probably our carbon capturing technology when it's a little more commercially viable, uh, you know these efforts are not going to mean a lot on the world scale.
0: Absolutely. That's a really important point because, uh, as you say, uh, coal is still by far the biggest uh, source of energy throughout the world, and particularly in poorer countries, less technologically advanced ones. And, uh, and coal, the Chinese are building new coal plants all over Asia, not just, not just in China. So uh, that's really critical. But the other side of the bargain here it seems to us, as we propose, is that the government kind of recognize that there's a role for gas, and that the, the problem is not gas itself; it's carbon, and that if you can, if you can do, if you can invest in car, carbon, you know, capture and storage. Who knows? You could burn gas forever. It's 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 getting the carbon out of the atmosphere, which is the critical point. And to that point, particularly, uh, you know, making sure that you're dealing with methane, which, you know, is a really powerful greenhouse gas, much more powerful uh, greenhouse gas. And so um, the other side of the bargain would be to really challenge industry to step up its efforts to uh, deal with fugitive methane and and other, uh, you know, other byproducts of the um, uh, mining and drilling and using gas uh and you know make show that they're making a big a powerful investment in this decarbonization future uh and try to you know uh, uh, you know build around the consensus that it's decarbonization that matters rather than a kind of a uh you know uh, 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 uh either or battle between you know renewable fuels or fossil fuels
1: that's right and there's you know there's kind of a good news story here which is that there's a you know not all Oil and gas companies are are equal in terms of the way their practices and their culpability, and there are some good players and bad players. And there's a set of good players, particularly the larger uh, players, who would like to see stricter methane regulations. Um, and I think because in a pure business sense, they can afford it, and they know that their smaller competitors can't. But they were actually on the side of of Democrats in the past year when we were trying to oppose the way that Trump was loosening the methane regulations uh, under the EPA and they were saying, no, you should keep these where they are. Um, and any any sort of jobs focused Democrat should love these regulations because right. what they actually do in real time is create jobs for pipe fitters and plumbers and, and people who go out and, and do the fixing of the pipes and the gas infrastructure to make sure that methane is not leaking, You know, to minimize leaks to the, the maximum mm-hmm. extent possible.
0: And, and to your point about exports, to the extent that the we can clean our gas, you know, deal with methane, reduce the methane content, then our exports become more competitive, more attractive. and we can help, you know, we can help, we could help advance another Joe Biden goal, which is to get America back into the Paris Accords, you know, be leading again in international efforts to get other big emitters, you know, to uh, to reduce uh, to meet their targets under 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 Paris. Well, this all sounds good, but how are we going to get a democratic consensus around this very practical, uh, sensible view about, you know, a realistic path and balanced path toward, uh, uh, you know, uh, the clean energy future, which everybody seems to think we're we're going to you know, we're heading toward. Um, you know, does Biden's victory provide any kind of demonstration effect you know, to to folks in the on the other side of this debate, to the green side of this debate, that you know, if you want to be a national party, if you want to put together governing majorities, if you want to win states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Colorado, um, Louisiana, uh, you know the old, old, you know fossil energy intensive states that uh, you know you can't you can't uh, push this kind of abolitionist view. I mean, do you see? You know, and a lot of people are worried. Frankly, that now that we have the Senate, there'll be even greater pressure from the left. Uh, on President-elect Biden to, you know, to um, uh, press the pace of, you know, of uh, sort of, you know, uh, when we're, when we're going to phase, phase out uh, all, all fossil fuels. Um, I mean, what's your sense? Is it, has, the pra- has the practical uh, viewpoint that you embody and we think that the president-elect Biden does, you know, is, this, is that growing or do we still have a big argument ahead with uh, the green left?
1: Well, I think that we probably gained momentum in this past election because the American people showed us that although they trusted Joe Biden to become the commander in chief and they wanted him by a nice large margin, um, you know, they weren't totally buying the democratic brand either. I mean, they, the Democrats lost ground in the house Here in Pennsylvania, we lost ground in the legislature. Um, So I think that demonstrated kind of where the American people are on this, uh, at least on the economy as a whole. And I I would say here locally, that energy was a big part of that because it was such a big part of the campaign. Um, This is probably an issue where having Joe Biden in the White House is going to be a huge asset. We know where he stands. You know, he's appointed Jennifer Granholm and people like that into his cabinet uh, who are similarly pragmatic. Uh, conscious of the environment care about it but but focused and practical and able to say uh, let's do let's be technology neutral and do what it takes to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that's all we need to do and so if mm-hmm. that's carbon capture and gas uh, or if it's solar or if it's a mix of these things which probably is great right. uh, legislatively you know this may be an issue where we have to plan to go get 25 Republican votes in the house and a few Republican votes in the Senate and lose some on the far left of our party uh, that's doable I mean, I've served on the, the energy committee in, in science, space and technology with these Republicans. Um, they, they don't all deny climate change. A lot of them accept it. They just they have sort of a private sector focus on on how you do it. And I, I think a lot of them honestly have a more fine grained understanding of, of gas and fossil fuels because they're just closer to those companies. And so they they would like to see that be part of the mix. And if we design our proposals correctly, I, I am confident we can get their votes.
0: Well, that's that's a really interesting point, Congressman, because uh, that suggests the possibility of building center-out coalitions in this new Congress, where where Democrats uh, Democrats can rely on some moderate Republican votes and afford, frankly, to lose uh, folks on the far left who are more dogmatic on, on some issues like energy. Well, look, we only have two minutes left, Congressman, but I I really have really enjoyed this conversation and. Uh, and I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Can I just end on a really tough question that nobody could do justice <laughs> with in, in two minutes? But just give us, you know, your top of head thoughts. You know, we have a, a problem of, you know, we the other side, the the Trump MAGA side of the equation, you know, living on they seem to in live in a, their own separate reality. You know, how do we begin to fight that phenomenon? He's been knocked off Twitter and and Twitter's been knocked, I mean Parler's been knocked off Facebook, but out of the Apple store, but how do we fight this dueling realities problem? Do you have any thoughts about what, what works with voters since you're on the front lines?
1: Yes, I mean, we, we climbed back out of the basement after 2016. You know, if you remember there obviously was unified Republican control of the House and Senate and White House. And, you know, we wanted a seat like mine that Trump had just won 18 months earlier by 19 points. And we won so many seats like that in, in 2018. By taking our case straight to the voters, you know we didn't worry about trying to change the mind of Republican congressmen who um, have are living inside their own reality. But we went straight to people on the ground at their doorsteps, uh, just doing. You know, there's nothing fancy or modern about it; just old-fashioned politics. And I think a critical part of it was we had a level of focus uh, in 2018 on the fundamentals. You know, the price of medicine, your health care bill, your pension your minimum, the minimum wage, you know, things that just really are, are immediate and concrete for people. And we pretty much stayed on that, you know, you weren't in the 2018 campaign, you weren't hearing as much about um, Green New Deal, socialism, all that kind of all came later. Uh, and it hurt us in 2020. And I'm not saying it's the fault of those members. It's part of a Republican attack strategy, but uh, it hurt us. We got away from the fundamentals or the Marine Corps calls this brilliance in the basics. You know, they're always trying to to drill into that. And so I think we can succeed at that again and in future elections by, you know, once the pandemic is over and we can do more of our own grassroots stuff, we no longer have one hand tied behind our back. Um, it's going to be tooth and nail. There will be some elections like mine that you only win by 700 votes, but we can do it. I mean, and we have Biden in the White House now, which is going to be a big help uh, for us in doing this.
0: Uh, well, the, 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 when you tell the voters the truth, you, you've got to have a confidence or faith that it'll it'll sink in, and it it, it seems uh, it seems to be working, but by by a, by a scarily narrow margin <laughs> sometimes. But listen, uh, we'll we'll leave it there. And you know, if if uh, if Joe Biden can focus on the fundamentals, as you say, I know he'll have you in his corner, and I think that'll be a great help to him. So. Thanks. Thank you very much for being with us today, Connor Lamb. Uh, thanks for your service to your country. Thanks for the remarks you made on the House floor last Wednesday night, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Well, uh, thank
1: you for having me and for all the work you guys do. Um, it, it can be it can be lonely with the center in these in these times, and uh, you guys are really taking up an important amount of space there. And I hope you you stay strong. So thanks a lot.
0: Thank you.